I don't care if you're six figures, seven figures, eight figures, every single business, regardless of how much you have, still has this problem. It's lifestyle inflation. It's business inflation. We spend more than we have. So we've got to constrain ourselves. People go, well, how do you go from 100,000 to 20,000 and still survive? Well, that's the 80-20 rule, right? We waste so much because we don't think. And if you put the time to figure out, hey, what is the 20% that's going to get me 80% of the results? And then say, what's the next 20% that's going to get me the next 16% of results? We've got 96% of our results, and now we've got 60% margin. What could you do in your life with 60% time margin, 60% money margin? Like, that's where you start to get to enjoy the seven hats. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, seven hatters. In this episode, we speak with Rocky Lalvani and dive deep into the intriguing universe of fiscal optimization and financial discipline as we tap into hats four and five, the entrepreneur and investor. Today's special guest is not your average financial guru. This profit-first expert holds a unique knack for transforming complex fiscal principles into digestible advice that will grab hold of your entrepreneurial mind, steering your business to robust financial health. Get ready for an eye-opening journey as we dig into the hidden potential within your business and highlight the key elements that can transform a regular company into a highly profitable venture. But brace yourselves, Seven Hatters, because this episode isn't for those who shy away from change. We're about to slice through the standard fiscal protocols and descend into the captivating world of disciplined profit and controlled spending. Today, we'll explore navigating your business from a sea of bills and liabilities to a landscape brimming with profits and sustainable growth. Rocky is no stranger to finance. He is certified in the profit-first method, has direct hands-on experience increasing the profits for multiple businesses, and has access to profit specialists throughout the globe. He also hosts the Profit Answer Man podcast, helping implement the profit-first system. So, if you're primed to become the entrepreneur whose businesses thrive in any economy, let's welcome Rocky to The Seven Hats. Rocky, welcome to The Seven Hats. Thank you so much for having me. Excited for our conversation today. Uh, same here. I'm excited to speak with you today because like many entrepreneurs, I think we've been misled in the way we run our company's financial decisions. Most of us had at least some training, as in Accounting 101, where we learned how to create and read basic statements like the P&L, uh, profit and loss for those who don't know what a P&L is, balance sheet and cash flow. Although... I don't know how good we ever got in the cash flow arena, but more on that in a bit. But where I'm getting at, the basic fundamental formula is revenue minus expenses equals profit. And as we will discuss, 
this is all backwards and actually hurts companies and founders in the long run. But before we get to this fascinating subject, I'm sure the Seven Hatters would love to hear your backstory. And as an immigrant myself, I can relate to your journey. So Rocky, let's start with where were you born and how was your childhood like? So I was born in India and my parents immigrated to the United States when I was just past the age of two. So essentially, I've grown up in the United States. However, I grew up in an immigrant household. So it's different than what you traditionally see, because they bring with them all of the the way that they do things back home, but yet they're trying to fit into this new country. And, and how does it all work out together? Now, when my parents immigrated, they didn't have a lot of money in the United States. They basically came with nothing. So we started off on the not-so-nice parts of town, oh. as always. But within a relatively short period of time, I saw them and their friends, who had also immigrated in and around the same times, kind of slowly move up that economic ladder. They were achieving the American dream. They were having success. They had had success back home, but you kind of had to leave it all behind to start over. And some did better than others, but I saw them all move up the economic ladder within a pretty decent amount, short period of time, considering everything that was there. What did they do? So my dad, well, so that was the problem with my dad. He was a pharmacist where he came from. His pharmacy degree didn't transfer. Mm. So he had to basically start over. He went back to college. He was 40 years old, and it never really worked out with getting the pharmacy degree here. My mother was a school teacher, so when she came here, she taught math and was a guidance counselor. Unfortunately, I think it was about five years after they came, she passed away. Wow, so sorry. it became my dad being a single dad and having to raise a kid in this new world in a different way. And... This was the early 70s. We went into a recession, so things weren't always easy. In spite of that, though, we never felt like we didn't have. But one of the things that I had seen, because of our background, we saw, well, we saw poverty because of where we ended up. But then we also saw great wealth. And we saw that all those opportunities were there. So there was never a poor us. There was never a lack of opportunity. There was never you can't achieve. It was always just expected that you would have success in life, that it was your choice and that you would go get educated and do well in life. And what did your dad want to see of you? I mean, did you were you primed to be a business guy, an entrepreneur, or what What was your, actually, what was your dream and what was your dad's dream towards you? So my dad was essentially an entrepreneur back home. They always had all these different businesses. He came here and here he wanted stability. So when I saw him growing up, he worked for a company and for him, it was all about stability. And it makes sense because he was a lone single person in a foreign country. That's what you want. I was always taught you have to go to college, get a good education. And, you know, within our culture, everyone either becomes a doctor or engineer. <laughs> I By the time I left high school, I was tired. Like, it wasn't my thing. I went to college because that's what I was supposed to do, but no passion for it. In the meantime, 
as a kid, I wanted to be a millionaire. Like I saw what money could do. I'm like, I want to go be successful when I was always hustling to make a buck. So I had, I was the kid with the paper route. I made good money, you know, with a paper route. And then what I used to do is we lived close to New York City. I would go into New York City. I would buy things wholesale, bring them back, split them up and sell them to my friends. So, you know, five below, that was me before five below. You know, I could always find opportunities and do that. So I was making a lot of money as a kid doing that. I then went to college and, you know, I still was getting jobs, a little bit of hustling back and forth. I never understood how to scale and I never understood how to really make the big bucks. Mm. Right. I But I knew how to make good money. And so you'll see that good is always the enemy of great. Mm. So I get out of college. I didn't have the greatest grades because school was whatever. I was always hustling to make a buck. And I got a job in sales and it paid well. And I quickly moved up and I was making good money. And in the meantime, so it goes back to where you started this. We have the wrong equation. One of the things I was taught to do was save. Number two, mind the gap between what comes in and what goes out. But the other part of that was we were taught you can lead a rich lifestyle on a pauper's budget. Mm. So it wasn't that you couldn't do this. So the moment I got out of college and I got my first job, I literally set up all of these automated streams of saving. And so money was just little bits of money were going everywhere to be saved, some for short term, some for long term, some for retirement. And once you start that process and then you just slightly tweak it constantly, yeah, it builds wealth. Yeah. So I took the slow path to wealth and I did well in corporate, but I also realized the corporate game and I realized the more you go up, the more time they take. But they don't commensurate you equally with the money for your time. Like your yeah. your money time equation starts to get off. Yeah. And so I refuse to go up the ladder. I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me, <laughs> right? Leave me alone. Let me have my time. And I, I don't do well with politics. So I knew that wasn't the place for me. I've always been a numbers and spreadsheet guy. So even when I was a kid, you know, I had the first Apple computer. I learned how to do spreadsheets on VisiCalc. I was going in showing accountants, you know, hey, this is how you go from paper ledger to electronic spreadsheet. Even when college, I was working for a bank. They're like, oh, you know how to do spreadsheets. Do these <laughs> spreadsheets for us. And that was my original goal, you know, get out, make a little money with a job and start teaching how to do spreadsheets. But I had no idea how to approach the market. I had no idea what the value of what I brought was. And I had no idea how to even reach people. There was no Internet, right? There was no podcast. There was no this is how you do business, because back then information was gold. So nobody was going to share these things yeah, and exactly. trying to find the information was next to impossible. So your whole strategy, so you're, you're working corporate and I'm assuming the, the shift happened when you've heard of Michael Michalowicz, right? Or is that before that the shift? No, that was much, much later. So I was always, I, I did well in corporate. I built up, literally, I built my wealth as an employee because I was automatically saving everything. Then I got So you were one of those millionaires that no one really knew about mm -hmm. because you weren't driving the Ferrari but you had everything in the bank. Is that kind of what a mix? 
Mm-hmm. So we weren't driving the Ferrari, but we did have nice cars. We went on great vacations. We paid off the house. We lived in a nice place. It wasn't like everyone looks at everything and goes A, a or Z. But there's yeah. a whole lot between A and Z. True. So we lived a nice lifestyle. Later on, I got involved in real estate. I got back into real estate because I did real estate when I was young, left, and then got back into rentals and flipping houses. And so that was probably my first step back into entrepreneur. And then around this time, I'm looking around, I'm going, why do most people struggle with money? Because this wasn't hard for me to build the wealth. It was pretty easy. And then I started to learn that there were all of these hangups around money and that people weren't talking money at home. People weren't talking about money in school. And, I, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I have a Bachelor of Science in Economics and an MBA. They never taught me how to build wealth. Yeah. So that was kind of learning that whole part of it. And then I started to get into personal finance and helping people in that space and always doing that. What I learned, though, is and it, it's, you know, Warren Buffett says it. Nobody wants to get rich slowly. <laughs> So there's this big struggle. Hey, I'm trying to help these people, trying to build a business around this. And what I learned was, if I can teach you how to get rich this weekend, you'll give me all your money and be broke. But if I tell you how to grow wealth in 10 years, you won't listen to me and I'll go broke. So it was kind of that struggle. That's where Mike came in. All of a sudden, I read, someone told me about the book with Mike and I started reading it. And I'm like, what do you mean business owners don't understand the business of business? What do you mean they don't look at their P&Ls and their balance sheet? Like, I'm an MBA. You run a business. This is what you do. Like, that's what it's all about. You're running a business. And I realized most business owners aren't doing that. And so the same principles that I talked to you about, how I built wealth, they're the same principles Mike talks about in the book. All he's done is change the flavor. So if you've heard of Dave Ramsey, mm-hmm. yes. if you've heard of the envelope system, it's that same concept. Give money a job and send it to do that job. And I was just shocked that business owners didn't do this. I thought they actually thought through these things, <laughs> but they don't. And I came to realize a couple of reasons why. Number one, they do what they love. And they, they unless they're an accounting business, that's not what they love, Right. So that was part A. And then I think part B, the emotions of money and all of that still come to play. So here you are, you're a business owner, you're bringing in, you know, seven figures, but you don't know how to read your P&L and you don't know where your money went. And now you're embarrassed, right? What do you do about that? And how do you have those conversations? Yeah, And so I think that was the mix that brought me in to start looking at, hey, if I pivot to helping business owners, does that make more sense? And I probably spent another year or two studying the market, testing it out, trying to figure out what people would pay and does this make sense? And then I was like, okay, this does make sense. And then work got bad. And so it was like, okay, work's now going bad. We knew it was like... What I was doing was a declining industry. Like I've been through so many declining industries where technology and competition wiped out industries. And so I knew it was coming again. It was just a matter of time. And I was like, do I want to stay in this or do I finally want to go do what I love and what I enjoy? And that was when I made the, the jump. 
And I said, let me just go do what I love and let's build a business around this and let's make it happen. I love it. And you don't have to do it too, which is what I love most because a lot mm -hmm. of coaches and, and mentors, they build a business because they want to make money of the business, most first and foremost. Now, nothing wrong with making money, but when you actually create a business because you have a passion for it, because you really believe in what you're, what you're selling, that makes all the difference in the world. So let's start at the beginning then, beginning of time. <laughs> I would say that we all somewhat act based on our learnings. Some entrepreneurs, they don't have a formal education, you know, only the school of hard knocks. And some have a PhD or a master's in finance. But the issue is, what is the world teaching us, right? At one point in time, and some do still do think that the world was flat or that the Great Wall of China is the only man-made structure that you can see from space. And they're both wrong, by the way. What are we being taught of money? And do you think that these teachings are actually somewhat correct, completely false? Like, Because you've seen the teachings in grad school and, and in college, right? For business finances. What's your take on it? So what schools are teaching you is how to read a financial statement and how to prepare a financial statement. They're not teaching you how to truly affect a financial statement. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the business cases, like you look at Dell Computers, FedEx, they all came out of papers that someone did at school where they got an F because the, the professor said, no, you can't do that business model. Most of these professors don't know anything about actually running a business. Running a business, yeah. Right? Nor nor do they understand how to build wealth. They're all tenured because that's just what it is. But go back to your parents. So when you start to understand human beings, you'll start to understand how things come together in a way that you don't imagine. Your parents don't want you to be happy. They want you to be safe. Hmm. Right? And they will tell you, oh, don't do that. that. That's dangerous. Or don't go that way. You know, take the safe road. Get a safe profession, right? Which you may not like. It's not going to make you happy. Sure, it will make you money. Then they start to throw all these other statements on you. So when you were growing up, did you ever hear, we can't afford that? More than you can, don't, don't even bring that up. You just, I see, see the twitch. Do you see the twitch? Man, <laughs> money doesn't grow on trees. I, I've heard we don't have enough more than money doesn't grow on trees. Okay, sure. we don't have enough. Yeah, yeah. And you see, you already had a visceral reaction to it. Yeah. Everyone has money scripts, right? It's not talked about. It's only now, probably in the last 20, 30 years, that they've gotten into financial behavioral analysis and understanding the way that people behave with money. We're all programmed. Most of your money scripts occurred sometime between seven and 13, six and 13, along with a whole bunch of other scripts. So it's during that age in our formation that our mind is trying to make sense of things, starts to process it, and then it becomes routine. So think back. I don't know if you, you don't have teenagers, do you? No, I don't have no. any children. No. Okay. So do you remember when you were trying to learn how to drive a car? Yes, I do. Yeah. Difficult, <laughs> right? And if, if you're an adult trying to teach your kids how to drive a car, you, you, you realize it even more. <laughs> yes. But now think about today. If you went for a drive today, would you even think 
Like, would you even remember how you got somewhere? Would you even plan yeah. out your route? No, you just no. go. You're, you're, you're listening to a podcast. You're drinking coffee. You're, you're thinking about something and you arrive at your destination. That is the way our mind is designed. So if you haven't questioned your money scripts, if you haven't questioned all of your behaviors, you're running on autopilot, which means most adults are running with the mindset of a 10 or 12 year old, which is why most adults act like kids and make silly decisions. And this isn't the stuff we talk about. I don't know what the universe is trying to tell me, but my last four podcast interviews, which have not aired yet, were about imposter syndrome, stress, burnout, money scripts, and now financial advice with you. <laughs> I had a, a an interview with Morgana Ray, who really speaks to the subconscious, unconscious story that we tell ourselves with money. That's a good segue, right? So I believe that the right mindset is critical, right, in all aspects of life. I never really thought about a money mindset, though. And what a powerful and successful money mindset might look like. So what is your take on money mindset since we're starting to talk about scripts? And are there some examples that the seven hatters can develop so that they have the greatest chances of building wealth? So just like your mind has turned your driving into an automated system, do the same thing for your money. Get yourself out of it and just automate it. So the way I built wealth is I set up automatic savings plans and the money went to where it needed to be. Mike's taken that same principle. Mike Michalowicz wrote the book Profit First. Mm -hmm. And basically what he did is let's take our money and let's use those same principles and send our money where it needs to go to do the job that it needs to be. So you started a business. I'm assuming none of you started a business to be unprofitable. Not that I know of, but maybe some, potentially. Maybe some, right? They want to do a cause. That's wonderful. But if you're not profitable, you can't serve your cause. Exactly. And so Mike said, let's create a system where every time we sell something, the money comes into one bank account. And the first thing we do is on a regular basis, and, and I can go into details, but it, it's a lot easier than it sounds. On a regular basis, the first thing we do is we take some of that money aside and we put it in a separate account called profit mm -hmm. because the first purpose of business is to be profitable. The second thing we do is we take some of that money aside and we pay you, the business owner. Because let's face it, and you've probably heard these stories, most business owners pay themselves last. Mm -hmm. They live on a shoestring budget, right? And then they go home and their spouse yells at them, you worked 80 million hours this week. Where's the money? Why are you paying everyone else but me? Right? We're, been, there, so, been there, done that. Yes. Been there, done that. So pay yourself. The third thing that has to happen is there's this guy named Uncle Sam. And he's got guns and power, and he will come freeze up your bank accounts. He will never let you get away with this. He will hold you till you die, and then he'll come get his money. That's so if put, you believe in Uncle Sam. Not everybody <laughs> believes in Uncle Sam. It's like Santa Claus. You never, like you Santa never know. Claus, yeah. Put your money aside for taxes. One of the biggest things that I've heard from clients who use Profit First and it's weird. They go, when tax time comes for the first time, we feel confident. Mm -hmm. 
We're not scared of the conversation with our CPA. We know that we're going to have a tax bill. And as much as we hate to pay taxes, we feel confident because we know we can stroke a check for them. Paying taxes is the price you pay for a successful business. So we can argue tax strategy all you want, but at the end of the day, you pay taxes because you're profitable. And if you're not profitable, you don't have to worry about this. And then you wonder why you're struggling. So you put the money aside for taxes. And then what is left is what's truly available for your operating expenses. So what this is doing, it's using a principle called Parkinson's Law. Most people aren't familiar with Parkinson's Law. But Parkinson's Law basically says up, we will use up all the time and resources given to us. So if I come to you and I say I have a project and the first question is, What's your budget and what's your timeline? $100,000 in six months, it'll be $100,000 in six months. I come to you and say, hey, it's $20,000 and I got six weeks. You'll figure out how to get it done for $20,000 in six weeks. You business owners are resourceful. You know how to do it. And so by constraining ourselves naturally, we figure out how to get it done. We don't just throw money at problems. We become more resourceful. We figure out a better way to do it, right? Because we have to. And I don't care how much your business is. I don't care if you're six figures, seven figures, eight figures. Every single business, regardless of how much you have, still has this problem. It's lifestyle inflation. It's business inflation. We, we spend more than we have. So yeah. we've got to constrain ourselves. People go, well, how do you go from 100,000 to 20,000 and still survive? Well, that's the 80-20 rule, right? We waste so much because we don't think. And if you put the time to figure out, hey, what is the 20% that's going to get me 80% of the results? And then say, what's the next 20% that's going to get me the next 16% of results? We've got 96% of our results. And now we've got 60% margin. What could you do in your life with 60% time margin, 60% money margin? Like that's where you start to get to enjoy the seven hats. That's where it all comes together because you've built a life of margin that you have the ability to handle these things and you have the ability to handle the sucker punch. And everyone in business is going to get sucker punched, whether it's COVID, recession, supply chain. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. Right. The bank says, oh, we decided to call your note. All of these things happen. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs and seven hatters are listening right now. And in their mind, there's a lot of movement and they're they're thinking, oh, OK, but so let me ask you a question. So, so many entrepreneurs spend their life savings. Right. And they take out mortgages sometimes, too. And I've even heard of some actually who spend their children's education funds to ensure their business has enough capital to survive, you know, kind of the early days of growth. Now I look at business at a life cycle, business life cycle, similar to a newborn child, right? When a child is born, they need their parents, right? And their tribe to take care of them or they die, <laughs> obviously. So you can't ask your newborn child to do pretty much anything, right? So the full, so the parents actually become full-time ter- caretakers. But then, you know, the child grows up, they develop skills and abilities Similar to me doing chores on the weekends for my dad. Yeah. I wouldn't say I just go as far as slave labor, but I digress. Anyway, so when the child grows up and if the parents and community did a good job raising the kid, perhaps they become 
you know, a financial wizard like yourself and take care of their parents since most likely their parents need the help. The irony of life, right? Anyway, you get the point. So how do you take from a business that needs you and your team and doesn't have the means to give back as of yet? You know, you're talking about a business that's, you know, less than five years old, really in a competitive industry, um, especially in, like for me, uh, I started a software company. That is a highly costly venture to build up to later get results. So tell us a little bit about that. So I think the first thing is a mindset shift. Profit is not an event. It's a habit. So let's start the habit. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a startup, then you can still start profit first. What we do is we tell you, A, you've got your seed capital, correct? Mm -hmm. We keep our seed capital separate. Every time you spend seed capital, you should be asking your simple question, what's my return on this investment? So you don't just put it in the main bank account and money comes and goes and you look at it and go, there's plenty of money. We don't have to worry about it yet because I can tell you in six to 12 months, that won't be what you're saying. Mm -hmm. By keeping it separate, you're saying, hey, we've only got this little bit of money. We need to work on this. You tell me your burn rate's five grand a month and five grand a month every month comes into your operating account. That's what you need to live on. Every time you make a new sale, that's new revenue coming in. Do you think you could put 1% of new revenue aside? Hmm. So you're saying current revenue and burn rate stays where it is because you're not going to fire half your team or make huge changes if there aren't any. But any new revenue that comes in, you start, like you've done multiple revenue streams of income, like start taking a little bit off of that without growing your expenses from where they are right now. But what about a business that is a service-based business where every new account or new client usually demands and requires more expense? Hopefully not more than the revenue brought in. <laughs> See, that's, that's this, is where we, this is where you face reality. Yes. Most business owners, if you haven't taken the time to actually put your business model into numbers, I can tell you, I look at businesses and I go, you're never going to be successful. Yeah. Don't waste your time. This is a wonderful hobby. Go figure out how to make money somewhere else and go do your hobby. I'm not telling you not to do your hobby, but what you're telling me is, hey, we didn't think about this business. It's always going to struggle and we're deceiving ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I laugh because so many entrepreneurs don't make money off each sale because their whole methodology is growth before profits, right? That was that was basically Jeff Bezos for how many years, right? But we're not Jeff Bezos. We don't have the ability to go into the capital markets and go, I've got a dream, give me money. True, true. If you are that good and you can constantly refill your pipeline by selling people to give you money for nothing, have at it. Yeah. I, the reality is we are not Uber, you know, we are not these companies that can go for 10 plus years losing money. 
But that's our mindset, right? As entrepreneurs, we look at the Mark Zuckerbergs, we look at the Ubers, we look at the Bezos, and we're like, we need to make a billion dollars in the next three years. So in order to make a billion dollars in the next three years, you got to spend, outspend your revenue 10x or more in order to get there. So that's a mindset thing. I'm, I'm not, pro I'm proponent. I think I'm with you. I think that's what we need to speak to though, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into this trap that they can make a profit and, and be, or make a killer business in, in a short period of time where it takes a long time to build a business, at least a profitable one in the real world, right? In the real world. Yeah. So honestly, I mean, if you look at the survival to get, forget about billion, okay? Going from zero to probably two to five million is next to impossible. Yep. Like 98% of them, 99% of them won't get there. Yep. Honestly, if that's what you want to do, here's the smartest way to do it. Take your seed money, go find a business that's at two and a half million that's poorly run, mm -hmm. buy it with $200,000 down, take it over and fix the business model within a year you'll start generating tons of revenue. That's you'll a good skip idea. all the yeah. hard part, right? And now you can take that and use some capital and go buy another one and maybe put 10 of those together and roll it up. And now you've got a $100 million company and we're profitable the whole time. And then go buy 10 of those and, you know, <laughs> take the easy yeah. way. Why do we all want to work so hard? We're entrepreneurs. We, we have issues. <laughs> We have issues. <laughs> Let's talk about an issue. Let's talk about cash flow. Let's talk about an issue. So for some entrepreneurs, the only physical exercise that they do all month is they run out of money. Okay. So give us your take on what entrepreneurs should focus on to utilize the profit first system responsibly, right? So you spoke a little bit about start taking money out of every new sale. Can they do it beforehand? Let's say they have a little cash. Let's say they have $200,000 in cash in the bank. Their burn rate is about 30K a month, let's say, okay? So they have, you know, maybe six months to a year of runway without any need to raise money. So they'll have to make more profit or make more revenue. What's your advice there? Do they immediately start taking dollars into a, a side account and utilize their cash in the bank until they start making more money? How, how, what, what's your opinion? So on that? are they generating revenue today? Yes, they're generating revenue today. And they're, like I said, they're, they're burning a little more just a than little they more. are making. Okay. Right? So just a little more, but they have a cash reserve. Let's stop there. First thing, let's segregate our cash reserve. All right. I want you to feel the pain every time you pull money out of your cash reserve. I want you to realize that you're doing this and, and Mike does it. So if you get into one of the parts of the book, Mike's profit and tax accounts are actually in a separate bank and he needs a second signature because he will spend money faster than you and I will. So he had to put a lock mm. and key on his money. So you should segregate that money with lock and key. Now you say, I don't have a business partner who will provide my lock and key. Go ask your spouse. They're really good at lock and key, right? Come justify, why do, why do you need more money this month? So that's number one. Now what we're doing is we're, we're implementing Parkinson's law. We're constraining ourselves. Let's face it. If there's only a little bit of loss every month, have you taken the time to sit down and go through all your expenses and ask yourself, is this necessary? Can we get it for less? Is this vanity? Right. Too many people start a company. We need a fancy office. No, you don't. 
right? You go to a blue collar. I, mm-hmm. I need the Ford, mm-hmm. whatever, $100,000 pickup truck. We know inversely proportional. The nicer the truck, the faster they go out of business because they don't realize what it costs yep. to maintain that. So cut your spending up front. And, you know, this is the time to really watch your dollars. If you don't have the dollars coming in, you got to run on a shoestring budget. So let's say I'm going to continue with this scenario because I've seen this often. They are stewards of their money. Their expenses are actual necessary expenses. You know, a few thousand bucks is not going to do make a difference. But for the most part, 95%, 98% of those expenses are valid expenses that any one looking from the outside would say, yep, you need the systems and people in your organization. But payroll can be up to like 80, 90% of your, you know, of your expenses in the beginning, right? Because you're growing. And as long as you're bringing in new customers, you do need people to help you, especially in service-related industries. How do you manage that part? Do you, because look, unless you're a beanie baby guy selling on eBay, right? You will have employees and you usually pay them first, right? And the company's expenses before your own salary. But what happens if you now say, okay, fine, I'm going to cut expenses, whether to pay myself first or to get a, a, more of a more of a profit. And you have to if, you know, let go of, of a few employees. What do you do? Do you put on the work on other employees? Do you take on the work yourself and start wearing more hats? Because you know, that's the big dilemma, right? I think that the payroll side is is huge with businesses. Payroll side is huge. One of the things that I I try and work with people is a couple of different parts. First off on the big picture, where can we use subcontractors, right? And so let's say if you've got 50-50 employee subs, your income might be a roller coaster. Well, you can constantly lay off your subs because they're not really employees, right? You give them work as you need them. So they're taking care of your excess while your core is being done. Mm -hmm. Second, what processes and things that are being done by people are being done efficiently? What can we eliminate? What can we outsource? So if they're doing a lot of things in time suck ways, can we bring automation in? Can can we move it offshore? Today, most of my clients are using offshore people, whether it be Philippines, all over the world, and they're paying a fraction of U.S. wages. On top of that, you can't even find people in the U.S. at those, you know, at the lower wages who want to work. So you're really struggling anyway. So it's really thinking through your business. What can we what can we eliminate? You know, how do we streamline our systems? What can we automate? What can we outsource? And then what can we sub? But you've got to take the time to think. I think too often we're just throwing money at solutions. I need another person. Why? Like, do Mm -hmm. you really need another person? Have you built your offering in such a way that maybe you don't need another person? Figure that out. Yeah, all great advice. And I got to be honest with you, when I knew I was interviewing you, I spoke with my partner, my business partner, and I said, check this out. I've heard of this profit first process and system. And he's like, yeah, seen it, done it, 
<laughs> have been trying to get you to do it for years. So I think we've uh, awakened a monster. And for now, I think we're going to reverse the formula. How was it meeting Mike for the first time? And tell me that experience. Meeting, um, I'm trying to think even the first time I met Mike. Was it a course that you went to, like a seminar or something? Or how did you even hear about him other than the book? So I heard about Mike because of the book. And then I started having conversations with the Profit First organization. So people don't, here's the truth of the matter. Mike is a serial entrepreneur, right? He's a serial book writer. Mike is the front of Profit First, but Ron Saharian runs Profit First. So when mm. I was going through and interviewing them and looking, I was talking with Ron throughout that whole process. And that, that whole process probably went on for over a year between me thinking, me having conversations, and they don't accept everyone into their state. Mm. They, they want to make sure that they've got the right fit on their end because they, they, we represent the brand. So they want to make sure that it works both ways. And then I think as part of my sign-on, I went to ProfitCon, and that's when we had the, uh, the whole beginning of training, because the training process is at least six months long. So when I went to the event, I got to meet Mike and Mike's a wonderful person. He's very giving. You know, at the end, he threw a party at his house. We all went to his house. He's just a fun, great guy to hang out with. He's also very charismatic and he mm -hmm. speaks really well. Great stories. Very funny. So if anybody has a chance, if Seven Hatters have a chance, you should listen to Mike as well. So before we get to how can Rocky help the Seven Hatters and what you actually do on a day-to-day -day basis with your uh, clients, I'd like to close on my interviews with the following question. Mm -hmm. okay. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? So I was an employee, right? I had to stop relying on a paycheck. Oh, I love that. And I had to have the courage to go out and essentially say, this is what I'm going to do. And I had to figure out how to tell the story. And I mean, I had to create a system. Like this took time. This was not like, oh, overnight, everyone's right. You think about it. Look, So you're a classic, well, you're somewhat of a classic example, but people will hear about profit first. It'll take them three years to implement because of all the emotions with money and all of the, the other yeah. baggage that they personally carry. So for me, I think it was letting go a lot of that myself and having the courage to say, this is what I'm going to do. And then building a business plan that worked because you can't be a profit first professional and say, uh, I, I'm not doing so well this month, right? You have to, your business should be highly profitable itself. You've got to build that business plan and actually do it. So yeah, a whole bunch of changes. And we didn't talk about all your other hats. I, I do talk a lot about that, but you have to figure out how to be the person you want to be, which is health. You know, I've lost a lot of weight, best shape of my life, you know, figuring out who and what you are spiritually and how you connect. How are you constantly growing and learning and improving yourself? Well, then let me have you back and we'll <laughs> speak about not just the money part of it, but the rest of life. And what, you know, what's, what would be interesting to speak with you on is the belief that money cures all ails, right? The belief that when you achieve some sort of financial result, 
if you become a millionaire or a multimillionaire or a billionaire, that all of a sudden your 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 world just becomes rosy, right? Rainbows and unicorns. And I think you've seen that. And I'd like to delve into that part of it maybe more. So maybe in a couple of months, yeah. we can have you back specifically for that. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to say is that Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, said, money doesn't cry for you. Don't cry for money. And I think that when you said the typical entrepreneur will take three years because of all the other issues, I'm implementing the strategy as of May 1st. So thank you for bringing this to my attention. And speaking of that and how you helped even just change a behavioral pattern with me, you welcome Chris, my co-founder. And <laughs> he puts me in charge of money and then he complains about it all day long. You know, that's what he does. So how do you help individuals like myself who have a business, who are starting a business, whether they want to pay themselves or whether they want to just create a profitable enterprise? What's the, the timeline look like? How long do you work with them? Give us a little more detail on that. So usually once we decide to work together, and we go through a process before we work together. Uh, what I do is I take a look at where you are. I'll show you what I think is going on, and I'll give you a little bit of feedback. And we do all of that. Just It's part of our sales process. It's all free. Mm -hmm. So first, it's just getting to understand where you are as a business owner. But once you come on board, our first call is two hours. And we start with the first question, which is kind of what you started with me today. Tell me about how you grew up and how you learned about money. Mm. Because what I have found is if there is bad programming, the business is going to fail. So the first thing we need to understand is, do we have to overcome the bad programming? What are the constraints? What are the behaviors of the business owner? Then we ask them what their dreams are. Why did you start this business? What are your goals? Then we look at all the other parts of life. So very similar to the seven hats. Tell me about all these different areas. How are you in alignment? Because if you're bumpy in one of those areas, your business is going to be like a Ferrari with a flat tire. It's going nowhere. Yeah. Going nowhere, yes. Yeah. And because you're bumpy. So the first thing we do is we figure out the business owner. The next thing we do is we set financial goals. And then little by little, we start to work towards achieving them. Most clients will work with me long term because, you know, if you look at a big corporation, right, Jeff Bezos has a CFO. If he fires his CFO, he doesn't go, hey, I'm, I'm going to save money and not rehire that position. <laughs> he needs yes. to put somebody else in the money seat. So someone always needs to be in your money seat. In the future, it might be somebody else. Maybe you've and it's learned different enough than to an take accountant, it over. Though. Oh, it's, it's totally it's different, different than account. an accountant. Yeah. The money seat is not doing the transactions. The money seat is actually helping you steer the ship and saying, are we going to be profitable? What do we need to be profitable? Where do we deploy capital? How do we deal with all of the different financial issues? So here's what happens. Accountants look at the rearview mirror. They tell you what happened. Yeah. I look out the front windshield. You're a business owner. You're, you're always looking at six shiny objects. Well, yeah. let's define your six shiny objects. Let's see which one actually has the potential to take you to the moon, right? And yeah. let's go after that one. I love it. Accountants are like calling the fire department after the house burned down. Mm -hmm. It's a little too late, <laughs> you know, once you get the, the, the financial statements all worked out. Rocky, how can the Seven Hatters find you? You have a website, email. The website is profitcomesfirst.com. 
And the podcast is Profit Answer Man. So wherever you listen to this or anything else, you can find it there. Awesome. It was such a pleasure having you. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for honoring us on The Seven Hats. I think that, if anything, you can be the catalyst for at least some entrepreneurs to pay themselves for the first time ever, which is a huge deal. It's a big event. No entrepreneur forgets the first time they pay themselves. And I think it's just a, a wonderful thing. But also more profitability. Too many businesses fail. They shouldn't fail. They have great products. Their marketing sucks and they just don't know how to, you know, work through their financial budgets and, and profitability. So Rocky, thank you so much. And we'll have you back on to discuss the other seven hats and how money relates to that aspect of life. Thank you so much. I'm excited to come back and join you again. All right. You got it, Rocky. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rocky. Let's end today with a show segment that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here is my takeaway. Today, we journeyed into finance, peeling back the layers of how a business can transition from struggling with expenses to sustainable growth and profits. It's all about cultivating a mindset shift and understanding that profit isn't an occasional event, but a consistent habit. Reflecting on my journey with my first CPG brand, Luvala, and now my SaaS software company, Promash, as well as other entrepreneurs that I've interacted with over the years, I've noticed how many are consumed by the constant tides of managing business costs, pushing their resources to the limit. We often find ourselves in a seemingly endless cycle of spending, chasing revenues, and navigating unpredictable challenges. However, as Rocky and Linus implementing principles such as Parkinson's Law, the 80-20 Rule, and Profit First can be game changers for us and our business. These principles and disciplines force innovation and resourcefulness. Focus on what truly brings results and prioritize profitability. This episode is an anthem for entrepreneurs to step back and reassess their financial strategies, incorporating these key principles. But just as we champion financial health and business, we must not neglect our personal well-being. Success isn't solely about financial gains and business growth. It also involves cultivating a rich, fulfilling life that includes personal development and maintaining our physical and mental health. As Rocky emphasized, profit and personal well-being can coexist in harmony, and indeed, they should. The stories we heard today, including my journey, underscores the importance of balancing our business demands with our individual needs. We should strive to fill our lives with financial success and a wealth of health, spirituality, and personal growth. I want to thank Rocky once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our 7 Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.